Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Therapist in the NHS for 40 years. For several years, Evans was clinical lead of the adult and adolescent departments at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust. He was also one of the founding members of the Fitzjohn Service for the Treatment of Patients with Severe and Enduring Mental Health Conditions and or Personality Disorder. Evans is the author of Making Room for Madness in Mental Health and Psychoanalytic Thinking in Mental Health Settings. I wanted to welcome you to Savage Minds and kick off with a question about how you got into this field. Well, um, so my wife worked in the JID service. Well, first of all, I've been in psychiatry for 40 years. So, um, you know, I, I come across people who had transitioned and, um, I used to run a Paris suicide service in Kings. So from time to time, people who'd had um, sexual reassignment surgery, they'd hoped that the surgery would sort everything out and then they'd have the surgery and it, then, it, then it hadn't sorted everything out and, and then they'd become suicidal. So that was in the 80s. And then from time to time in psychiatry, I've come across people um, who had gender dysphoria or who transitioned. But then my wife uh, worked in JIDS at the Tavistock in the early, um, well, about 20 years ago. So I used to hear about it there. I, I was also part of the management system at the Tavistock for 20 years. So from time to time, I'd hear about what was going on. Um, Anyway, that was my introduction. Um, okay. So you were at the Tavistock initially, but not at JIDS, the Gender Identity right. Development Service, for those who aren't familiar with the, uh, the abbreviations. Yeah. And when did you and how did you become aware of what was happening around gender ideology and whether the, at the Tavistock and in other contexts, and then what was the last straw for you to get out? Okay, so, so basically, my wife worked there and, and was very worried about what was going on. So the Tavistock is known for training and working with people psychologically. Um, it's the biggest trainer of people in systemic psychotherapy and psycholytic psychotherapy in the NHS by a long way. And so she started working on a service, which was, she felt very quickly moving people on to taking um, hormone blockers at a sort of early age. And she felt this was, she was very uncomfortable about this because she felt that a lot of the kids that she saw had comorbid problems. Um, they were on the autistic spectrum, they were socially isolated, they were struggling in various different ways and she felt what was required was a more thorough psychological investigation. So um, I was in management, she came to see me, I said will you try and talk to the team. She felt that her uh, concerns were very unwelcome, there was a rather a sort of feeling that, that this was 
the, the, the approach and that she was sort of rocking the boat by questioning what was going on. So in the end, after quite a long period of time trying to work with the, with the system, she um, made her disquiet known to the medical director at the time, who was a guy called David Taylor. So there was an investigation done by the trust of JIDS in about, I think it was about 2005. And I think that there was a Newsnight programme done recently in which they interviewed Sue, my wife, and David Taylor. Um, and a current um, person that works in JIDS called Kirsty Entwistle. And basically, David Taylor was saying his conclusion was that, that the service had sort of moved away from what you'd think of as good medical practice. There wasn't enough curiosity about, about the treatment, about the kids, there was need for more research and a more open-minded approach. And so th this was the report that was written in 2005 within the trust. Um, now then to sort of roll, um, to cut a very long story short, in which I would hear as part of the management of the, of the trust from time to time, there were sort of disquiets about what was going on in the, um, in the service. And in a way, the JID service started to become a sort of a bit of a silo. It was rather isolated from the rest of the trust and certainly disconnected from the sort of the history and the culture of the trust, which, as I say, is not not a sort of biological approach. That's not what the Tavistock's known for. It's a sort of psychological approach to, um, to psychological problems. Right, so I retired in 2018, um, having been at the Trust for 20 years. I took up a post, this is a voluntary post, as a governor on the Trust Board. The, the Board of Governors sort of oversee the workings of the trust in terms of whether the trust is doing its job in terms of looking after the public. Um, and a, a, a colleague of mine called David Bell, who's probably the best known clinician in the trust, he'd been a board of, on the board of governors. He, he had to stop because he'd, he'd done his uh, term of office. And he'd been approached by 10 members of the um, JID service, all staff, who were worried about what was going on. And he'd done a report, and basically what he said in the report echoed what my wife's concern 15 years ago, which was lots of kids with complex problems, sometimes problems in the family, sometimes problems with their own development, and that the staff were saying there was insufficient investigation of the underlying psychological factors which were pushing them into believing that it was a, a physical intervention that was required in terms of puberty blockers or uh, cross-sex hormones. The other thing was there'd been a letter written by 10 parents of kids who'd been uh, being seen by JIDS saying more or less the same thing. They were disappointed in the 
the, the sort of thoroughness of the psychological interventions. So then I, with other governors, tried to take this up with the trust board um, in various different ways. We, we wanted to see Dave Bell's report. Um, we weren't allowed to see the report. As, new, as a new governor, I was told I wasn't allowed to see the report. Um, they'd also said that they were, they were asking the current medical director to do his own report. I said, well, that's fair enough, but I'd like to see Dave Bell's report. That was denied initially. Then we asked for Dave Bell to attend the final meeting at which we would look at the medical director's report and see, did it answer the questions that were raised in Dave Bell's report? That was denied as well. Um, and the, basically, you know, and you've got to understand, I've been in, in NHS management for a very long time and in the trust management for 20 years, uh, I felt there was a sort of cover up. Um, that's a strong way of putting it. And they would argue very differently. They would argue that the medical director's report was, was being used to thoroughly investigate things. But in these controversial areas um, where you've got vulnerable kids, one's, one's got to be open to the criticisms and to be concerned about the downside of your treatment and be interested in researching the outcomes. And neither of these things, in my opinion, was taking place anywhere near the level of seriousness that was required. Um, when I realised that basically um, the trust weren't really interested in the sorts of arguments that I was making, I resigned. Um, because within you, you sign a confidentiality agreement, so as long as I'm a governor, I can't say anything to anyone outside the trust. I'm talking to the trust, and basically it's falling on deaf ears. So I left in February uh, 2000 and crikey, 19, is it? Yeah. One thing that has struck me, because I've worked on gender identity from an academic perspective, I've been guilty of teaching queer theory in the days when queer theory was embraced uh, within academia as a way of mainstreaming homosexual desire. There was little to no talk of being born in the wrong body. Uh, this is something that happened uh, much later in the late 90s, early noughts. But one thing that strikes me about your particular situation, that of your wife's and the many other 40 staff members who have since left the Tavistock is how the fields of psychology and psychiatry around the subject of gender dysphoria has seemed to have been conflated in the sense that um, many listeners may or may not know the distinction between the fields of psychology and psychiatry. But since the 1950s, from John Money onward, from the first sort of high-profile media cases of Christina Jorgensen and people who were then called transsexuals having you know, sex change surgeries, as it again was called in the 70s and so forth. How did talk therapy seem to have been 
thrown out the window. And this treatment for what is now called gender dysphoria, again, changed from the last uh, manual, which I think previously was called gender identity disorder. So we're seeing this evolution of language occurring around what is now gender dysphoria, gender identity dys dysphoria. Um, and we're seeing these experimental treatments being ushered in that have absolutely no long-term data associated with them. But these treatments are being brought in. And how is it that medical, psychiatric, and then psycholo psychology professionals have been going along with it without raising eyebrows on the one hand. And on the other, you and your wife and many others have recently spoken out. But what changed? Like where in this trajectory from the 50s to now did talk therapy suddenly become verboten and let's get you on hormones become the fast track? Well, I mean, there are a lot, it's a complicated, isn't it? There are lots of cultural factors. The relationship between the doctor and the patient's changed. You know, it's no longer, you know, a sort of the paternalistic doctor who's giving the, the, the sort of compliant patient. It, it's much more, um, you, you could argue, it's much more of a sort of customer service type model now with the internet and and you know and people are um in a much more democratic relationship with medics <clears throat> um the thing is is we're well in psychiatry because of the complex of the complexities of the mind and some of the difficulties that we're up against you know there's always a tendency to search for a, a sort of a magic bullet um you know, lobotomies were were um, very popular in the 1950s. You know, that was going to be the the solution to all sort of psychological problems. And you had CBT. So often, in psychiatry, often you get these um, situations where suddenly someone comes up with a new idea. It may have some good ideas within it, but that often the baby gets chucked out with the bathwater in terms of rigorous examination of what does this actually offer and what are the limitations of what it offers. So that's, that's some of the sort of background. Um, for the first 30 years of my time in psychiatry, uh, as you probably know, you know, that the profile of people who transition, it was after 18 years of age in this country, and it was 90% male to female transition. Um, in the last 10 years, there's been this exponential, and the, and the numbers were small. In the last 10 years, there's been this exponential rise and a complete turnaround in the profile. So it's, it's sort of, I don't know, 85 to 90% female to male. Now the ages are much younger, it's coming up at sort of puberty and kids as, as young as 10 and 11. Um, and there's been this huge politicisation of this area. And this is one of my biggest concerns and worries that as the political agenda 
it's all about sort of ideals and beliefs has penetrated the clinical setting that good medical practice is being pushed out of the window so that that um approaches to this area are driven by political ideology and beliefs rather than clinical evidence and um, what's in the interest of the patient long term so as you say i mean it is quite remarkable that a lot of um, our current practice is is based on I think you know the Dutch study in whenever it was you know 15 20 years ago on, a, a, on mainly boys 70 boys I think it was in Holland of a different age group they're all older than the current cohort 20, 20 of them dropped out of the study where's the long-term research why doesn't anyone think that we need to be doing research what's the Tavistock been doing for the last is that it's the national service what's it been doing for the last you know 20 years since it since its inception i think the answer to this is it's not seen as a sort of clinical issue um it's seen as a sort of you know like a choice well, it seems to be consumerism at the heart of this. I mean, when you mentioned the relationship between clinician and patient has changed. I know from friends in New York who are psychiatrists that they are now told for many years now to call their patients, not patients, they call them clients. And I've been thinking a lot about the, I mean, to be blunt, the capitalist machinery behind this. What, you know, what I want, I get. I essentially, we're affecting choice upon medical professionals where yes, once upon a time, medical professionals were considered gatekeepers to certain uh, objects on the menu. So they would decide, should we have ABC, et cetera. But now, there's a force around this particular, if I might say, pathology to have, this has been so politicized that you're immediately called gatekeepers if you say, well, I think this is the best course for you. And there's a whole lobby and there are now NGOs all over the place, not just in the UK. There are lobbies in every English speaking country that will take doctors down. And I'm, I mean, this is not coincidental either, this clientization of the patient and then in line with a lot of Lisa Littman's work on rapid onset gender dysphoria, uh, ROGD, and the notion that there's a social contagion that's been driving the numbers these last 10 years, as you've noticed, especially amongst adolescent girls and young women. And one has to wonder to what degree then this clientelization has almost entirely deplatformed the medical side to these very arguments and made it a completely, or not completely, but almost completely social construction as a, a cultural narrative of not just transgender, as you know, how many identities are there i'm agender i'm bigender i mean we could make it up if i told you neapolitan ice cream gender you'd have to believe me right that's right i mean i think that 
you know, my stance is that there has been a change and, um, you know, there are good things about the change, you know, from a sort of paternalistic model. But still, as far as I'm concerned, as a, as a, as a psychiatric practitioner, very proud of what I do, my job is neither to agree with what the patient is requesting, nor is it to disagree. My, my job is to think, what's this all about? And to understand what are the drivers that are making uh, a child believe they need to take hormones, they need to change gender. You know, what, what's that all about? In the end, they may, you know, they may decide that they want to transition. But, you know, the, the, the concern for the practitioner should be that often these decisions are driven by powerful psychological forces. We all want a sort of cure-all to the problem of ourselves. Maturity, in maturity, we, we, we learn we have to come to terms with who we are, warts and all, all our limitations and difficulties and one thing and another. You know, that's, that's um, and life is complicated and so are we, and so is our relationship with the rest of the world. And that very rarely is there a sort of narrow focus on one problem as it's now become everything's about gender and identity. Well, there are many facets to us, many facets to being a human being in society. It's complicated. There are many moving parts. Very rarely is you can narrow down a sort of um, complicated psychological issues to one problem with one solution. And so my job is to understand what's driving all that and think about um, the, the long-term um, losses that are involved in transition. You know, there, that some people trans, transition well and it's, um, it's, uh, it works for them in the long-term. We know that, but there are casualties. Um, and I think particularly with this no, new co cohort, they're going to be people dragged into this who are going to feel this is the wrong decision. And it's not an easy solution either. It's got, there are losses involved, there are costs involved. So, yeah, I think it's a big problem when clinicians feel intimidated into being pushed out of their positions. Not the gatekeeper, is it, but sort of providing a break with a serious psychological investigation in thought in the interests of the of the patient um, but people feel very intimidated you'll notice isn't it as you say lots of people speaking to the sunday times um, load of people talking anonymously to the papers about their disquiet it's a dangerous area to stick your head above the parapet because you just get accused of being transphobic and you get shut down. And the other side of this argument is rarely, if ever, covered, such as, and I've, I've talked to many parents on both sides of this issue, and to me there seems to be, again, speaking as a cultural anthropologist, I'm seeing a kind of aporia of community that identity brings out to all of us what's your identity marcus oh let's have a meeting on wednesdays and you know let's make scones together um you know everyone is in search of themselves this is a lifelong you know western obsession of sorts but 
there seems to be something odd when I see some of these parents who are trying to affirm their own identity through their child's, their own wokeness, their own progressiveness. And I'm seeing this including um, parents who might be, just be homophobic and see this as their get out of jail card from some kind of non-wokeism to wokeism. And uh, the same applies for the social contagion, not just amongst these adolescents, but is there also perhaps a social contagion amongst the parents? Example, is there's a very large Facebook group of these parents. Uh, it was established by the American reality TV star's family, uh, Jazz Jennings' mother. And there's a load of parents going into these groups. I've been sent many screen caps of the discussions going on there where parents are seeking approval from other parents in this world of having barely enough time to spend with their children. In a way, pronouns becomes, as I called it uh, recently, the drive-through window of fast love, you know. Have you seen much of this in your practice? Well, um, so, so basically, of course, the parental diet, the, the family dynamics are very important. It was one of the things that was raised in Dave Bell's report. Um, there's a lot of, um, um, you know, worry that the kid was going to end up being homosexual and the parents were against homosexuality, so wouldn't it be better if they were trans? That was certainly one of the one of the profiles in the in the parents others you felt there was almost a, a sort of wish to um yeah change the the child to the gender of their preferences yeah i think in the background you know that sometimes there's there's like um child death you know there were examples of um say a baby girl dying baby born is a uh, baby boy is then subsequently born and there's some feeling that things would be better if they were the could replace the baby girl for example and this sort of thing I'm, I'm making these examples up but this is the sort of thing that dave bell talks about in his report and it's certainly the sort of thing that uh, but the other side of it is we, my wife and I, since um, you know, I wrote wrote the, the the couple of papers on this issue. We're contacted by parents who are very different in their presentation, their profile, as it were. They're worried that their their they say their kid is is on the autistic spectrum or is socially isolated. They 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 don't fit in well. Um, they've known about these problems for some time. And then suddenly they go along to the child service and come back and say, oh, yes, you know, I really need to change genders. And and the parents are really worried that the services are sort of provoke, promoting this as a solution. And as I say, the parents themselves, let's say, you know, if this is to be the outcome in the end, that's fine. But what they're worried about is that the services are sort of caught in some sort of belief system in which they're promoting this as an ideology um, and they're very they don't trust the services basically well what are your thoughts about the enormous numbers of autistic teens who have been referred these past years 
Well, um, so so Sue and I have written this book because we we felt that you know there's a sort of missing psychological model for thinking about what, what's going on with these kids. And one of the things is that often, you know, and this is a sort of um, generalisation, and and I'm simplifying it obviously for the purpose of this podcast. But basically, you say someone who. Um, develops a mind that struggles to deal with the sort of complexities of how they feel about themselves in relation to the external world. There's a sort of tendency to want to gravitate to what we call sort of black and white thinking, which is sort of simple ideas. If only I was perfect, if only I was like this, everything would be all right. And then I get rid of my problems. I mean, we all function like that to some degree but in a sense they're sort of pulled towards that way of thinking rather than thinking well you know I'm a little bit of this and the world's like that and you know we've we've got to put up with the the imperfections of ourselves and life Um, and that in in some ways that sort of black and white thinking is attracted towards an ideology where you say this is the solution and you get rid of the problem so for example you know you can see that for some they see being a, a, a little girl who may feel she sort of struggles to hold her end up in the competition she's not the prettiest she's not the brightest she, she struggles with relationships in a sense an ideology says well you can leave all that vulnerability behind all the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune all the pain you can leave that behind you could transition into being a boy, then you could be sort of tough, macho figure who doesn't really feel very much as far as the outside world's concerned. And you basically get rid of the problem. Now that's very simplistic, and these, you know, it's obviously much more complicated than that. But, but I think that's, um, so in other words, there's a sort of pull between the, the child's, um, psychological structure and the ideology um, which is this sort of black and white thinking um, and uh, th- I think I think the evidence is, is sort of that 30% of the kids who go into um, who have gender dysphoria suffer from are on the autistic spectrum you're listening to savage minds we hope you're enjoying the show please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I have to wonder, as you've been talking, what would you be telling these same children? Were were we in another universe and gender dysphoria was not even a thing? Children have been since how many... hundreds of years been dissatisfied adolescence is hard we all struggle with what we want who we are how is it in a way i'm asking a very strange question but i compare this to i've worked on stockholm syndrome and you wouldn't go to a psychiatrist and say i think i have stockholm syndrome i'm in love with my my kidnapper and the psychiatrist would never turn around and say hey i have a solution why don't you get married to him 
or you're a kleptomaniac and the psychiatrist recommends that the government sponsor you for a visa gold so you don't have to steal anymore. How is it that this seems to me and all my knowledge of psychoanalysis and psychiatry to be one of the only kinds of pathologies whose remedy is to fall into the, th I'm gonna use this word anthropologically speaking, but theater that the subject believes him or herself to be embodying. How did we come to that instead of, I think you could deal with this kind of behavioral therapy or this kind of analysis? Well, as I say, in psychiatry, the mind's a complicated thing. It's not, it's not like medicine, although it sometimes tries to act as if it was. You know, it's not a matter of the liver's got a problem, we treat the liver. The, the, the mind and the personality is, is full of sort of moving parts that interact with one another. And as you said, you see, you, you sort of go from being a child when you've got a particular relationship with, you know, with your parents, with the world and uh, sort of expectations. Obviously, families vary a huge amount, but adolescence then hits and several things are going on. One is you've got the hormonal changes. You've got all of the implications of the hormonal changes, hormonal changes. You're becoming a, a sex, um, your secondary sex characteristics come into play. There are questions about what sort of role you're going to play in society as an adult, what sort of sexual roles you're, you're going to play. Um, and, and so all sorts of anxieties that are introduced at puberty start to sort of stir up the pot and again as you say enormous confusion you know you, you were you saw yourself as like this in latency now you know your body's no longer under your control all sorts of things are happening to it your roles are changing and i think enormous confusion and um yeah sort of adolescent angst who am i where do i fit in now the usual process is in a sense well kids experiment you know become a bit macho become a bit feminine you know do this do that you know and and that's the way it should be uh, join this group join that group it's, it's a sort of pro, sort of hodgepodge in a way the confusion needs to be allowed our parents sort of support sort of and um, allow this process to sort of play its way out. But of course it, it can be disturbing, particularly for particular kids who sort of feel at odds with the world. That's not unusual. As you say, it's been going on for millennia. Um, but in a sense, it's like as if now we've got to have a solution to the problem of adolescence and puberty. And, as I say, you know, um, psychiatry has a long history of looking for, you know, magic bullets, you know, that we've been searching for a, a gene for schizophrenia for 50 years. The phenothiazines came on the market. We thought everything was going to, you know, phenothiazines were going to solve all our problems. Then, it, then psychoanalysis, would you believe it, in the 1950s, then CBT. So, we, we're very prone to sort of um, overclaiming on whatever the latest thing is. And as I say, often there's, there's some benefit, there's some good, but 
it's usually more limited than is being currently claimed. And well, there's also a social pushback to these kinds of yeah. therapies. I've done work on CBT and the GET therapies that surround a topic that is actually more controversial than this, if you can believe it. It is chronic fatigue syndrome, something that is highly contentious and doctors are hounded to the point of having to have their male x-rayed um, because they're threatened over the suggestion that therapy can help. And I find it interesting that in this day and age of clientelism of the relationship between patient and physician, that we're seeing this pushback to therapy and we'd like um, instead this menu yeah. of fixes, please. Well, look, it, I think it's, it's a bit of human nature, isn't it? You know, you've got a complicated problem. You don't know if you're going to be able to solve. That's the psychology of who we are. And the fact is we, we can't, we can improve certain things, but there's certain things we're having to come to terms with and live with in terms of who we are and what, and the nature of the world. And there's, there's always a seductive pull to a sort of um, a concrete solution. You know, if you took this pill, you know, everything's going to be all right. Or if you, you know, you, you, so, and we're, we're all, psychiatry is very prone to it. Um, and, uh, and certainly, as you say, with the sort of consumerization of psychology and psychiatry, you know, there's a, there's a big push to say, I mean, look at um, the, so, so if, you, if you went back a hundred years, um, the old diagnosis of depression was melancholia, there were very small numbers of people who had what I called psychotic depression, sort of old style melancholia. The increase in the number of people diagnosed with depression is inextricably linked with the introduction of antidepressant medication. And as they've, as they've improved and progressed, more and more people are now diagnosed as having depression. Now, the thing is, I'm not against antidepressant medication, but you can see that there, there is this uh, sort of um, relationship between the, the medications and the diagnosis. Because, as I say, you went back 100 years, the number of people who, who suffer from depression is very, very small. Now it's huge. Um, lots of people given antidepressants for all sorts of things. So we, we're, we're very prone to, um, as, as clinicians want to prescribe medication, as uh, patients want to take medication. Now, what, what I want to make clear is I'm not against medication. Um, I just think we tend to idealise it and we idealise concrete solutions to problems because actually looking into what's going on in our minds and um, investigating the mind is a painful, you know, it's a painful process, it takes time. The results aren't always as good as we would like. Um, you know, we've got to put up with the sort of limitations and disappointments of psychological treatment. You get to know yourself and then you realize you're a little bit like this, a little bit like that, and the world's a little bit like this. It's not the ideal we would like. Um, 
So concrete solutions are always attractive. Well, you were mentioning uh, Freud's notion of melancholia, which is interesting because I have a question for you about that because Judith Butler, the person who is largely credited for the creation of gender identity in the cultural realm, she analyzes his notion of melancholia, alluding, she states that he alludes to gender gender identifications. And she maintains that the giving up of the object is not a negation of the cathexis, this libidinal, libidinal energy invested in an idea, person, object. And she claims that Freud made room for this in his writing and that the identifications of gender substitute for object relations such that gender identification for Butler is a kind of melancholia in which the sex of the prohibited object is internalized as prohibition. She does this through the female daughter to the mother, so that the female, the daughter, her identity is based on a sort of acting out, the separation from the mother and the separation of the mother's body and her own homosexual desire. Now, this might you know, be very boring to some listeners, but I do wonder about how this kind of rehashing of Freud has had a large hand in what's going on. I mention this because feminist theory takes this to task in the 70s and 80s, um, most notably French uh, philosopher Luce Irigaray, who's done quite a bit of work in psychoanalysis, and she basically critiques Freud's location of woman as lack, the lack of penis. Is there <laughs> some kind of way that um, psychoanalysis might be helpful to getting out of this mess in terms of the social and cultural constructions that are going around currently on gender identity in the sense that you're, you have on the one hand this notion that gender, gender is a position of linguistic and mimetic loss from people like Luce Irigaray and for Simone de Beauvoir, where you know the female subject was already always masculine, that's what she writes in The Second Sex. And there's this idea of recuperating woman, but from the feminists who critique gender identity in recent years, they're seeing a huge difference between the kind of media and medical messages being given about the patient who is female and identifies as a transgender male and the males who identify as a transgender female. Because a lot of these feminists, and I think rightfully so, view the impetus for this identification as two different vehicles entirely, where women are the ones paying for their identities as transgender men through their lives, their bodies. They're taking testosterone, which is extremely dangerous. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of some of the studies that have gone on around uh, testosterone from the 1960s and 70s, and the increase in heart disease and heart failure as a result of that, as opposed to today, where a lot of transgender identified males, males who identify as women, are doing absolutely nothing to quote unquote transition. They uh, at higher numbers than ever, are just using linguistic transition, saying, I identify as a female. But many of them are not taking any kind of hormones or surgical measures to 
make this, this, the change, as it were. And I, a lot of this is tied up in the language of psychoanalysis as well. So I was wondering if you could speak to that, because there seems to me inherent within this a huge problem of what, it's a horrible word, um, much overused, but I think it fits here, the phallologocentrism of the placement of woman as lack within Freud and the way that there's this perception of women, of woman within the transgender community and that becoming this idealized woman is rehashing very old arguments of, I guess, what feminists would call sexism. Yeah, um, I, 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 I don't know that I'm going to be able to um, address a lot of the things that you've said. I mean, I, uh, and I, I certainly don't know what, what to make of the sort of use and misuse of Freud. I, I suppose, I do, I do think psychoanalysis has got something to offer though. And because, um, you know, psychoanalytic ideas, like any ideas, can be sort of helpfully used or misused. Um, what, what I think is that, um, you know, that one of the sort of developmental tasks for us is to sort of, um, in, a, in a sense, to come to terms with the reali reality. Now, that's not a sort of fixed thing. I, I, I'm against sort of rigid gender stereotypes. Uh, and in a way, it seems to me that this, the gender ideology is producing um, more and more rigid views of what a man is and what a woman is. You know, there are many ways of in sort of how you are a man and a woman in, in, in this world. It, um, expressing yourself in other words the, the, but but i think that one of the things you've got to come to terms with is is all the time is the sort of the politics of difference and loss you know that we we come to terms with our bodies we get to know our bodies and in a way you've got to sort of feel comfortable in our bodies now we're often sort of disappointed i wanted to win the Olympic 100 metres and, and I'm just not fast enough. I was quite quick, but I wasn't, I just wasn't fast enough. It was never going to be, no matter how hard I trained. But, you know, coming to terms with that loss is, you know, is, is part of sort of growing up in a way. It, do, it doesn't mean, you know, my life's ended or anything terrible has happened. And, and all the time, developmentally, we're having to come to terms with who we are and who we're not um, and that includes um, the recognition of um, the difference between the sexes um, so there's a, a, a guy um, uh, uh, an analyst called money curl who wrote about the facts of life and some of the things we all struggle with the fact that uh, there's a difference between the generations, there's a difference between the sexes and the fact that, that we're, we're going, we're mortal and we're going to die. Um, and all of these differences introduce us to feelings of um, separation, envy, jealousy and loss. And that, you know, in a way, um, as, par as parents with children going through this process, you know, you you're trying to help them come to terms with, with who they are 
and to accept who they are, not to sort of butt against who they are. And um, and, and I, as I was saying earlier, not, I, not to get too narrow that this whole problem of this fixation on gender, I think is, you know, it, it, it sort of, um, it's it, it, it's unhelpful because you we are complicated in many different moving parts as i said earlier on and you know we're, we're needing to broaden things out and see um ourselves for all our rich complexities rather than some narrow preoccupation with one area of life so anyway i'm not sure i'm answering your question but i but i think that um psychoanalytically we are interested in understanding the recognition of difference between the sexes, between the generations, it's painful, but it, it's helping us come to terms with things as they are, rather than, um, which we all do from time to time, is create sort of illusions or um, delusions, if people are psychotic, in which we're trying to, rather than face reality, and face the losses we're trying to move away from reality and facing losses into either sort of illusions which we create or delusions which are sort of self-invented systems we all do that it's part of um, being human we can't always face reality as it is but th these defensive structures, as I think of them, they've, they've got costs. Um, and one thing is they tend to arrest development. Development is a painful process that involves all sorts of anxieties and frustrations and difficulties. And we're sort of trying to sort of help individuals see that they've got sort of maybe stuck in some sort of belief system or some sort of... Um, self-constructed sort of illusion and and why that may be and that that, that facing um, developmental struggles it, it helps the personality grow and develop and and in a sense that's what we're we're sort of we should be about in psychiatry is helping people where they can face their difficulties rather than um, sort of moving into enclaves which protect them from painful developmental processes um, sorry so that's a long long answer that that's what I think it's it's a it's a great answer but it does it does present a conflict here and there's you give the example of you know what you would have you know, I'm sure you're using hypothetical you, but, you know, I would have liked to have been an Olympic this or that. But yet, paradoxically, we're seeing uh, what would be second rate male athletes elbow into women's sports by by virtue of their identity. Now, I mean, not to be mean here, Marcus, but there seems to be something afoot here in terms of how, as a culture, we are handling um, not just our adolescents, but even other adults, there seems to be this insistence that we must accept the identity that one sees oneself as or else. And this makes me worried because as 
part of a human society, one of our jobs is, is to accept the lumps, to accept the fact that we couldn't make it onto the yeah. sailing team or whatnot because we weren't good enough. And I think we're, we're in the throes of almost this cultural inability to accept our own failings. And this has become part of, I don't want to say entirely, but certainly part of a larger issue related to let's say gender identity and other things. I mean, we saw this in the nineties with parents, what was called then helicopter parents. And you, you, you can't say no to Tommy and you can't say no to Jenny um, because they'll melt down and we, we can't have that now. Can we, to what degree is this not just a psychological issue, but a social issue? Well, yeah, I mean, um, the reason you've got me here is I, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, I'm a, clinician and so that's the area that i feel most comfortable in of course it, it that these things do have social implications and and you've touched on some of the sort of cultural things that are going on I, what i would say about the perception thing is it, it sort of follows on doesn't it from what from what i was sort of talking about you know that we, you know in terms of who we are it's a sort of contested area. We've got a view of who we are, um, but the world's also got a view of who we are. And to some extent, our identity is, is a sort of dialogue between ourselves and the external world. And this is painful, you know, sometimes we, we're, we, the world doesn't respond to us the way we, th we think it should. Um, but as you say, you know, we're having to come to terms with that. And sometimes, you know, the misjudgments and sometimes it's unfair and sometimes it's accurate. So, so, um, but, the, but the, I think this sort of dictatorial insistence, I am the identity that I say I am and that the world has to respond to me the way I say it does is symptomatic of a sort of uh, rather dictatorial state of mind which is protecting a sort of fragility as if you say i can't bear it if things don't turn out the way i want them to um now you know with kids you're sort of helping them say well you know um yeah, when you go round to John's house and you play with his train set, when we leave, you've got to leave the train set behind. And because it's his train set, you know, and um, as a parent, you're helping the child come to terms with that. And, and you know, you might get tantrums and one thing or another, but you, you, you say, but, but that's John's and you can play with it next time or we'll do something else when we get home. You, so I think that, um, these dictatorial states of mind that are not only asserting what the individual is, but also how the individual should be seen, I think conceal sort of underlying fragilities and an inability to face the fact that we don't control everything. Um, you know, and... And in your job at, at the Tavistock, how did your job become affected by a lot of these lobby groups such as gyres and mermaids has that had an influence on how you were able to function 
Well, I in in Dave Bell's report, and I, I mean, you know, the the fact is is that um, I've learned a lot more about this area over the last two years. I mean, clinically, I've always worked in it, but um, in terms of the politics that we're discussing, that Dave Bell um, talked about the fact that there was much too much influence from the um, from the charities that they. Um, it's a very unusual situation. I used to run the adult and adolescent service and we had relationships with charities, but there's no idea that, that the way I ran the adult department would be answerable to the mental health charities. You know, it was, um, my job is to run the adult department and, you know, and some patients may end up having a relationship with the charities when they've been discharged or whatever, but but that was very different with JIDS and it's symptomatic of what we're talking about because it was as if the, the, the charities were in some ways sort of closely involved with the running of the service. And, and that's, that's very unhelpful. That shouldn't be, that shouldn't be happening. Um, and it well, organizations like WPATH as well, that is a lobby group. I've uh, looked into yeah. it, but it, it's completely a lobby group, but it has the power to set professional standards. How has that been well, able to as happen? as I say, it's this sort of um, political capture of the area. And, um, you know, the, the, the facts are, it's really quite shocking, given the controversial nature of this treatment and the vulnerability of the kids, how few rigorous research studies have been done. I mean, it, it, it shows a sort of that there's something else going on because in no other area of medicine where you've got um, a, a controversial treatment of vulnerable individuals, it just wouldn't take place. So Carl Hennigan, who's the professor who, who oversees nice which is you know our, our the body that looks at the efficacy of research and um you know the fact that the public are spending money on treatments are they providing value value for money so that there that there is no research that backs up our investment in the current treatments of gender dysphoria um now that's quite a you know, he, that's a person in a position of authority, basically saying this treatment um, shouldn't be taking place at the moment, given the current um, lack of research. Yeah. Well, certainly the 1970s era estrogen supplementation trials in the US were conducted under the long-term coronary drug project. This was where 8,000 men were given estrogen to lower their risk of cardiovascular disease. The trials were shut down because so many of these patients died. And this was you know, something I learned while interviewing a cardiovascular psych, uh, physiologist at Arizona State over the transgender and sports issue. Now, I take pause from this because I'm thinking, what about you know, the, the welfare long-term of the patient physically? Despite psychiatric issues, what about the way that testosterone and estrogen can negatively and does negatively affect the body? How is it that 
this has been so quickly embraced, fast-tracked, and, and so many people are professionals in the field, the public, parents, children themselves, are going along with this. Yeah, that, that, that's right. You know, the, the claims are for the hormone blockers that they don't, they don't have an impact, but, but they do. You know, they, they, they have an impact on bone marrow density, they have an impact on, um, you know, and causing, you know, osteoporosis, they have an impact on brain development, you know. So, um, again, a shocking lack of um, openness about the downside of treatment and and we know that you know people who go through medical transition and later have surgery there are all sorts of ongoing complications and these are rather downplayed um, and uh, you know you, you wonder how an 11 year old child for example who gets on this sort of conveyor belt because most of them get on the conveyor belt treatment don't get off can make decisions about this um, you know they're, they're not going to be able to think about the implications for their, their capacity to have children in the future what the implications are for the impact of the medication and any subsequent surgeries etc etc Bye.